And when I facilitated the first team development session for them as a timeout session, I presented back. Obviously, it was anonymized, but what I was able to present back was actually you've got more in common than you realize. So you all came to this because it was where you wanted to be. It was your ideal job. You all care about your patients and ensuring that you provide a high quality experience for those patients. But today you're all running for the hills. So you're either looking for another job, looking to retire or just looking to get out altogether. A few updates. We have a few free events coming up where our fellows share their learning, including one on preparing for your children starting school in September and also another one on returning successfully from maternity or shared parental leave for people working in the NHS. To get all the info, you can sign up to leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter or look on the website. I'm also thrilled to say that applications for our NHS Foundation Fellowship have just opened. I'll give you a bit of a flavour of what the last year's fellows said. One of them said, I think the impact has been profound. Without realising, I find myself having the confidence to engage in discussions and conversations I would have shied away from before. I don't feel afraid to be honest that I'm a mother anymore. Another one said, The impact of the Leaders Plus NHS Foundation Fellowship has been significant and transformative. It has provided me with a unique opportunity to connect with like-minded professionals facing similar challenges as working parents in the healthcare sector. Another one said, by providing practical strategies and support for work-life integration, the programme has helped me strike a better balance between my professional and personal responsibilities. One significant impact is that it has enhanced my ability to set boundaries and manage my time effectively. And I guess the thing that made me happiest is that two people mentioned the word life-changing in the end of programme evaluation, which is really positive as well as quite a few promotions and some. So anyways, sorry, I'm getting sidetracked because I got really excited about the impact survey. If you want to apply, the deadline is 11th July and we have 40 spaces available. Today I'm talking to Anne Crumley about compassionate leadership, about what has changed for working parents in the last 30 years and how to say what's really important even if it's going to make people feel aggravated. Enjoy the conversation. Okay, so I'm Crumley. I'm the Assistant HR Director within NHS Asher and Aaron. I have a specific remit which is focused very much on the development agenda. So I spend a lot of my time doing team development, leadership development and coaching are three or four big areas that that I focus on. And I, a working mum, I have two grown-up children. So I have a 30-year-old that's living in Berlin right now and I have a 24-year-old that's still living at home. He's very comfortable at home. You're providing a good service then by the sound of it. (laughs) (laughs) Too good, I think. (laughs) I I really hope my children are still going to think I'm nice enough uh, when they're 24 to want to stay with me. I'm going to ask a question that I'm asking of everybody. What did you used to believe about combining a big career with young children that you don't believe anymore? So I think things have changed very, very significantly. When when I had my children, I was very much of the view that you left all of that at the door and you picked it up on the way home again. So there, there was a very strong... So I've been working for 33 years in the health service, but even six years before that in retail, 
where any problems that you had at home, you just didn't bring it into work at all. So that was very tough. And when I started working, we didn't have mobile phones. We didn't have the technology we've got now. So if you were stuck on traffic after a really busy day trying to get to childcare, you had no means of contacting. So very stressful um, uh, memories in terms of trying to juggle all of that. And I think that has changed significantly today when I um, engage with leaders within our system where we're much more supportive. We have a whole load of policies that support, you know, family-friendly policies, etc. So I think, and we have the technology that makes that a lot easier than it was when I first came into leadership. 33 years ago, the world was quite a different place. And I'm making assumptions here about the environment, but I'm imagining that not every of your peers would have chosen to continue push forward in your career. Why do you think you did? So I don't know. I, I mean, it's interesting. I have a sister that's four years older than me and certainly she was still of the generation that, that gave up work when they had a family. I've always been very, I love studying. I love learning. I've always been quite academic, probably been very driven in terms of wanting to succeed. And I plan to have a family, but I actually made a little mistake and had my first one earlier than I'd planned. So that meant I didn't have access to the same maternity leave entitlement. And uh, so my youngest was 10 weeks old when I went back to work. And that was hard. That was very, very hard. But there was something about improving things for us as a family and bettering our opportunities. And that meant grafting hard. And throughout my career, I've studied. I've done a range of courses. And that's been, that's been fantastic, but has also been really hard because I both were important to me. I wanted to be a good mum, but I also wanted to be good at what I did. And so that sometimes meant I was hugely conflicted with which one became the priority. And can you remember at the time, did you feel guilty about going back after 10 weeks? The reason I'm asking is because quite a lot of our fellows and parents we work with, if they go back at six months versus the majority now goes back nine months or so, there's this massive sense of guilt and quite often judgment. How was that for you at the time? Very hard. I tried to be superwoman and it was years later, probably about 20 years later, I did a coaching diploma and I had a real aha moment because I spent my whole life thinking that other people were judging me, you know, in terms of why did you do this job and this career and all these courses when you were trying to read, why do all of that? And it was only when I did the coaching, uh, which went quite deep, that I realised the hardest hardest judge had been me, that inner voice that was saying, you should be at home with your children. And why shouldn't I be able to do both? So that was a real enlightening moment. It was, it was actually quite a relieving thing because I realised the person that had been beating me up all the time was me. Because I had a, I had a, a model that said, well, mum stayed at home and sister stayed at home. And I'm not mm. doing that. I'm doing something different. So I've been different, but I think I've still been a good mum um, while I've done all of that and a good role model to my children, I hope. And your eldest is in Berlin, uh, 30 now. Yes. And just for any listeners who are right now feeling that they're doing the wrong thing, going back to work when their baby is obviously screaming at nursery, a drop up, they all do that and they all do, <laughs> they all do that. <laughs> they really know how to push buttons, I think as well. Do you think your relationship has been impacted in any way by you going back to work at that point? I think so. I'm going to be honest, I've had moments where 
I've had huge despair. I've had moments where I've wanted to pack both their bags and send them somewhere else. You know, being a parent and particularly raising teenagers and all the challenges of that, it's not always been a Disney show for us. But I'm at a really nice place where I've got two full-grown boys that have got a good value set and still want to spend time with us. And I think that's a nice validation. So I think to anybody that's listening, be kind to yourself. You're doing a great job and they will follow from your good example. Absolutely. And it sounds like you're still invited. You're going back to work at 10 weeks rather than 10 months. It didn't make a difference whether or not you were were going to be invited to go back to Berlin to your son's... um... It's hard. I mean, I'm going to tell you, I cried for weeks. I cried and cried and cried, but I had to do it. I didn't have a choice. We needed the the income. We didn't have the luxury of saying, I'll take six months off with no pay. We just couldn't have done it. So part of that was an absolute Mm. need to be able to be, you know, getting up and going out to work Mm. every day. But was also so there was a choice that I I had to make but also a huge satisfaction because when I was there I enjoyed what I did I think that was important to me because to come home miserable at the end of each day would have been untenable so I had to do a job where I felt that I was working hard and making a good contribution and feeling valued and that's been important to me throughout my career and that's been I guess my my payback for not being around at those moments that I could have been. And fast forward 33 years on, do you think the problem of combining careers with young children has been solved? You mentioned it's better. Do you think it's been solved? I think it's moving in the right direction. I don't think it's been solved. I think we still have people today that are having to make those decisions. So I obviously work in health service. We still have, I think, significant issues in terms of, so if I look at medics, most female medics are having to make decisions about not progressing their careers. Maybe being able to pick it up later on, but you know, we've got a, we've got a big gender gap in terms of males proceeding or progressing further in their careers earlier because most of the females are the ones that are having to put it on hold. Mm. I'd like to think it's starting to shift, but yeah, I think we've still got a long way to go. And just tell us, in your day job, you do work to shift that. So in your day job, for those of us who don't work in training and development as a on a day-to-day basis, you basically run leadership programs for people at the front yeah. line, for medics, nurses, yes. midwives. Across the whole spectrum. So we run our courses. I think it's really important that we do them in a uniformed way. So we don't run specifically for each of those professional groups. They're multidisciplinary in approach, but we do it from very senior level right down to supervisory level, trying to equip them with skills, um, knowledge, and techniques to support them to be effective in their role. When I talk to people in the NHS, one word that many use is on its knees. And for any international listeners, you know, just search online for health service in the UK and you'll, you'll read some really tough stuff. I guess when you have people who work in such tough situations, who are working in a system that is on its knees... How do you talk to them about stuff like leadership when they don't they don't have enough nurses to cover each shift? It's hard. So I guess there's a couple of things. I'll give you an example. In the first year of the pandemic, obviously went into a very strong command and control environment. Lots of uh, things were stopped. So the only game in town was responding to what was coming in through the front door. We got to that first, obviously things locked down in the March. We got to that first December And so if you remember, we were just about to go into second lockdown with that little window before they they locked us down again. 
And I was approached because one of our senior leads for one of our hospitals had said they wanted to take some time out with team. Now, if I'm being really honest, it was December, it was really chaotic, everything was being done on teams. And I woke that day thinking, I don't know that I've got the will (laughs) or the energy to be able to facilitate this. How are they feeling? They're going to come here really resistant to it. So we did a two-hour, what I did was a reflective practice. We actually, I just facilitated a space that allowed them to talk about what's the last six months been like for you? What have you done well? What have been your struggles? And what support do you need to help gear you up for the next lockdown that we're, we're and the next wave of pandemic? So I think my place of honesty is we were all tired. We were all on our knees. But what I heard back, we took two hours out of a really busy schedule. And what they all said at the end of that was, this has been so valuable because we've been allowed to step off the treadmill. We've been allowed to have that space just to reflect. Without that, all you see is the negativity. And actually, there is a lot that we should be proud of that we've done well. And they felt that they had been listened to that day and that they felt valued and better equipped to be able to gear up for the next the next wave that was about to hit us. So I think it's just building it in and using opportunities rather than pulling people out all of the time. But I think it's about how do we support people when it is so hard, listening to them and helping them to consider and sometimes making tough decisions about some things have got to stop. It's interesting that you're saying you were taking time out in a crisis situation to do this bigger thinking. That really correlates to what many working parents go through. Obviously, we don't all go through a pandemic all the time, but the experience of working really intensely, being on that treadmill, trying to get done as much as you can before you leave at five o'clock in the afternoon or whenever it is to pick up your kids. How do you decide to take that time for the bigger conversation? So my personal experience, I didn't listen to what was going on internally. I said that I tried to be superwoman. So I found out that I was pregnant did a very busy nine months during that pregnancy, came back 10 weeks after that pregnancy, had signed up to do a diploma in through the Open University and about 18 months later took very ill um, and was diagnosed. Actually, they said that I had ME at the time and I had five months of being so unwell because I pushed myself beyond endurance. And so that I I look at young people today and think, please don't do that. Please don't do that. Some of this. So, you know, that academic bit, I could have done that later. But I didn't want to show that and somehow I'd let them down because I was pregnant. (laughs) And so it was like in any other life, you would have said, sorry, I can't do this. And I kept going regardless. How ridiculous was that? So my my we're doing a lot within my organization just now about compassion and resilience and resilience isn't about be tough and go stronger and keep going resilience is about listen to the signs know when you're tired know when to switch off Um, I'm better at that now with all that hindsight behind me but I used to work till one o'clock in the morning if I was delivering a session the next day to make sure that I had it all exactly as I wanted it to be so absolute exhaustion eventually made me go I got to stop I can't keep doing this and I think I worry because I look at lots of people that are doing that, that are trying to do the run home, feed the children, get them bath, get them to bed, switch the laptop back on again. Yeah, and it's, it's, I see a lot of it. I've done it myself. And it's that, does it really matter if it's done at nine o'clock at night or if it's done the next day? 
And I think if I come back to my service, it's that balancing bit that says if we have to keep doing that, we've got a resource issue. And we're hiding that by constantly bringing work home and doing it in the evenings because that should be our time to downtime to have quality time with our families or just to be at peace and rest up for a day. So, yeah, I've got very bitter experience of not paying attention to those signs. Thank you for being so open and sharing that so honestly. And when someone in your leadership training or coaching comes to you and you spot that behavior, how do you help them? Or is it even possible to help them feel that it is enough what they're doing and is it okay not to log on again or not to do that extra clinic during their holiday times, especially when you have system on its knees? I think people can perhaps recognize that it's not okay. It's that getting, so I use a lot of coaching. I can think about a manager that I recently coached who in a very difficult place, um, very emotional, had some stuff going on at home because uh, that never stops. <laughs> so stuff going on at home, but also had been very heavily involved in responding to the pandemic and lots of changes going on within the team at the same time. So exhausting um, and tough. And that person through coaching recognised some of this, but found it very difficult, that discipline of saying, actually, I've done it this way and tomorrow I'm going to do it differently is the real challenge. So it's it's work in progress. <laughs> but through coaching, we're able to look at actually um, over the last six months, look at where you started and where you are now and what are you noticing? And those times that, so one of the examples was the person was going away for a weekend with family and came to a coaching session saying, I'm so stressed because I'm going away for the weekend and I know everything that I need to do and I probably need to take my phone with me. And at the end of the coaching session, agreed that they weren't going to do that and came back the following week to say, I feel fantastic <laughs> because I did switch off. I did it. And yes, I've come back to a busy week, but it was so lovely just to switch off completely. Mm. So the coaching, I think, allows you to just to do what am I noticing? What am I hearing? And I heard a commitment the last time that you were going to do it differently, but, but you've not. And it's just that putting a little bit of gentle challenge back to people to say, well, actually, how do you push those boundaries back a little mm, bit? I agree. And sometimes it's also about just having that time to think or being forced to think by a coach. As I, I think I mentioned to you before, with the Leaders Plus Fellowship, we use the thinking environment approach, which really does force people to think. And it's really, it's almost funny how quickly people come to quite powerful realization when you just force them to think absolutely it can be so my experience when I'm coaching is it becomes very emotional because as individuals we keep going and we don't often stop to do that reflective piece and so when you do people usually go because it's like I'm facing something that I've probably been avoiding for a long long time you mentioned self-compassion there and I want to pick up on that as well as compassionate leadership but let's start with self-compassion. It is a buzzword. It's on social media a lot for those of us who are on social media. But how on earth do you enable someone who is in a hugely pressurized situation, who has a screaming toddler, who hasn't seen them all day? I mean, you're nodding. I can, I can tell you can <laughs> empathize with that. And at the same time, has a very long list of patients. They're never enough supported because there's just not enough staff because of the system failures how can you help them put themselves first what have you learned about that so one of the exercises we've been doing so I think all this emotional intelligence and coaching and compassionate leadership so when I first came across compassionate leadership I thought oh we've got to be really nice to everybody else 
And that's what compassionate leadership is, right? And that's really hard. And I, I manage teams as well. So I, I, you know, some days it's like, could you please just do what I'm asking you to do? So I completely get, I think the light bulb moment for me was compassionate leadership starts with self. So the, the, the person that we use that facilitates, it does a really nice exercise. And the exercise is think about somebody that you know that's close to you, either in work or personally, and think about something that they've been struggling with recently. And what was the conversation that you had? What was the tone of your voice? What was your body language? What did you say to that person who was struggling? Yeah, so you do that reflective piece. Now think about yourself and think about something that you personally have been struggling with. What was the conversation that you had with yourself? And that, that bit back to, to harsh judge, most people will say I'm much kinder and more forgiving with other people than I am with myself. So typically people will say things like, pull yourself together, just go on with it, stop moaning, stop feeling sorry for yourself. And so little little things about how do you just recognize that and start with yourself before you think about other people. And the second one that was powerful for me was when I think about people that I'm responsible for, we make assumptions about how to be compassionate with them and what's the right thing to do. So I have somebody who had two very tragic bereavements very close together and came back to work and was obviously struggling but wanted to be back at work. And my natural bit was to go, I'll tiptoe around them and I'll not overload them with work and I will make all these assumptions. And actually the compassionate bit is to just say, how are you today? And if they're struggling, just noting that, so today's not a good day, is there anything I can do to help? And that person quite often will say, keep me busy, give me stuff to do. And just noticing that I'm struggling is enough because we can't be the the fixers. I can't make things better for that person. But at least I'm noticing that I'm I'm walking alongside them, I guess, that day as they're struggling with whatever it is that they're dealing with. Interesting. And quite a lot of the parents we work with work in quite male-dominated environments. So, for example, we have quite a few surgeons who obviously, by the nature of the profession, sadly, it attracts more men than women for a range of reasons. What you're describing, I've been told previously that, you know, it sounds touchy-feely. I don't mean this as a criticism. So how do you become this compassionate leader without being seen as a total softy and I, I, again i don't mean this disparagingly i'm just thinking through what the people are thinking who are dealing with these traditional leaders you know all my life in my world of development and so I, i've done a lot of work with clinical teams who've said oh that development stuff that's all that fluffy touchy-feely stuff and i think i think partly because of my studies and my experience i've been able to give examples of where it's made a difference I think there's probably two things for me. So, so one is there's some really good research that was done by Lancaster University, led by Professor Michael West. I think it was around about 2012. They did a huge study into NHS England and Wales, and they looked at a whole load of factors. They looked at all the performance data. They looked at national uh, staff surveys. They did one-to-ones, a whole raft of things. And what they were looking at was a link between patient experience, patient safety, and also team development and health and well-being before we were really talking about health and well-being. And their studies finally gave me a body of evidence that I could stand up in a clinical forum and say, here are 
the findings from a very robust piece of work and it identified something like 10 benefits of those those things. Basically, what it said was if you look after your staff and you focus on team development and you build in some reflective practice, you will naturally improve the experience for patients. So start there rather than starting with trying to improve patient experience. And what their studies showed were were things like those organisations that concentrated most within the health sector, that concentrated most on on, uh, those three factors, had things like less mortality rates, um, less error rates, less infections, less absence, less turnover. So for me, it was it was suddenly like, you know, you could put back in the face, this isn't soft and fluffy. This is the stuff that makes a difference. And if I then think about examples of teams that I've worked with. So I think I shared with you when we last spoke, there was a team that I was asked to get involved in, clinical team that had got so broken, they couldn't come together as a multidisciplinary team. And I did a series of one-to-ones and what they all said was they were really passionate. So they'd got jobs that they really wanted in the ideal area that they wanted to be. And they all cared really passionately about their patient. That was the one common factor that they had. And when I facilitated the first team development session for them as a timeout session, I presented back, obviously it was anonymized, but what I was able to present back was actually you've got more in common than you realize. So you all came to this because it was where you wanted to be. It was your ideal job. You all care about your patients and ensuring that you provide a high quality experience for those patients. But today you're all running for the hills. So you're either looking for another job, looking to retire or just looking to get out altogether. And you don't meet as a multidisciplinary team and the nature of their service required a number of different specialisms rather than just one. So if you're not coming together as a multidisciplinary team, how's that beneficial for the patient? So that was quite a, I mean, it took a bit of courage to present that back to them, but it was quite, I mean, there was a silence in the room and I'm not saying it changed overnight, but what those teams, I've been working with them for three years now. And I did the last session I did with them, I thought, I don't recognise this team because they've turned themselves around. And even during the pandemic, they continued to meet as what we call an MDT because they saw the importance of it from the patient's perspective. So they have challenging relationships, they still fall out with each other, but they've recognised this stuff matters in order for us to be effective in what we're doing. And for you to be brave, it sounds like that was a key thing, that you were brave and you said your relationships with each other has an impact on patients' care, a significant life and death impact right now which is not what you expect when you go into your average training and development session, usually, I imagine. And probably 30 years ago, I wouldn't have done that. So probably 30 years, I would have been quite soft and fluffy around it. But now I think you've got to be a bit hard. You've got to use that information because that's where you have meaningful discussion. But it's a risky thing to say that to someone and picturing you coming into this non-clinical background as an outsider. What gave you the courage to take the risk and say it how it is? Probably my experience fed my confidence. So that's why I'm saying 30 years ago, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to back that. But what I'm able to break, so I guess what I'm able to do in the role that I've got is I've had great exposure to a lot of leadership theory and I continue to access that. I have to because of the nature of my job. But every day I combat that with my lived experience of there's a team that I've been part of So I've got those stories that I can bring that, and I guess that gets their attention. 
But it also, there's a respect around that, which says, well, guys, you've got a choice. If you continue to not meet, it doesn't matter to me. I'm not part of your team, but I just want to share some observations and what is it that you would like to do? And what they all said was, we want to meet as an MDT. We have to do that. Okay, so what would be required? And I, I gave them questions like, if you were scoring it today from when it, when it did exist, it was in the minus 10 scoring. And rather than saying, well, what do you need to get, do to get it to 10? My question was, what would get it to 2? At least you've got it starting to happen. And then you gradually improve it. So I think it's that how do you help them to take control of something without it feeling to go to 10 was unachievable. But actually, you've just got to start coming together. And now we're looking at, so how do you improve that as a process? What do you need to focus on? And what do you do when you've got one voice dominating? So I think I'm able to draw on that wide spectrum of experience that I didn't have 30 years ago. So I think any leader, (laughs) keep exploring, keep looking for those opportunities because they're out there and just build that experience and confidence. So many of the alumni of our fellowship program, they're quite interesting change makers and they all are full of ideas for things that could be changed for working parents. And some of those ideas require some quite bold conversations. And I love the way that with the scaling system, by the way, the 10, uh, 2 to 10 and so on. But as also a lot of the alumni, especially women, often have been socialized to be nice people. And as a result, don't like confrontation. I'm curious about your own experience. Did you, were you always at ease with confrontation? And I know you didn't shout at them, but you did say some challenging stuff. Absolutely not. <laughs> so this is again where my development helped me. One of the things that I did very early on was the Myers-Briggs um, psychometric tool, which gives you a preferred profile. And absolutely identified with from a very young age. I'm one of four children. So if things got noisy and a bit heated, I would just go and pick up a book and disappear. I didn't like conflict. I would stick my head in the sand and hope it blew over my head. And that followed me into my early years as a, as a manager where I thought it was about keeping everybody happy. And while sometimes I might have thought something, I didn't have the courage to be able to express it. I think getting that understanding of, so how do I deal with conflict? And then then gradually, I suppose it's a combination, Verena, of over the years, you get more experience of managing teams and you start to recognise conflict is inevitable. You put people together, there's always going to be conflict of some sort, even with people that you got on with. And I think some of the training that I did, so coaching was one of the best things and I did it quite late. But I wish now that I would encourage any leader get exposure to being a coach because you don't, it's not always just about. So there's a bit that I do, which is formally coaching individuals in a formal relationship. But what I've increasingly used it for is in my everyday conversations, because through coaching, you have a different way of embracing it. So before I would get quite, if I tried to deal with it, I would very quickly go from I'm not doing something to suddenly it's very confrontational. And now I'm much more comfortable with, with owning, I'm feeling a bit anxious here, or I'm not feeling listened to here, or I'm noticing that I've asked you a question and three times you've not answered it. That's the way that I would typically deal with it now, rather than getting myself heated. I am a human being, so I will still have times where I think I've gone from not to 10, but that's a personal choice of mine. And it's that taking a breath and be able to pay attention. So for me, It's been about noticing if I'm feeling anxious because things have got a bit heated, 
sometimes I'll just say, I'm feeling a bit uncomfortable here. I don't know about you. So I've gone from digging my head in the sand to going, I've got to get into a conversation here. But supporting people, because the last thing if I'm facilitating people is to put them in a situation where one of them suddenly feels in the spotlight. So I'm very careful about how I use that information in a safe way. So that team that I described when I did the one-to-ones, one of them said to me, these were consultants, and one of them said to me, if this session gets really uncomfortable, is it all right if I get up and leave? And I said, absolutely, because I'll be walking out the door behind you. I don't facilitate sessions where we get to that place. So there's a bit about how you're controlling that in the room. So I had an example of another team, and it was a very specific thing. It was a specific system that was being introduced and I facilitated it and I felt as if I'd stepped into World War Three because as a directorate, what they were saying was, we are not informed, we, we are here today and we have been misinformed and we are very angry and we are very aggrieved. The wee person inside of me was going, help, <laughs> what do I do? And instead of that, what I said was, I hear your anger and I'm noticing um, the hostility in the room. And I'm going to give you five minutes to take a cup of coffee. And in that coffee break, I want you to decide, do you want to come back into the room at all? Because they've all got choice. Do we want to, if you do come back into the room, do we stick with the agenda that we've got? Or do we come up with something different? And by giving them that, took some, some of them, a couple of people did leave. A couple of them said, yeah, I'm not. And it wasn't personal against me. It was to do with the organisation that I was representing. And the rest of them come back in and said, well, we're here anyway, and we've given up an afternoon of our clinical commitments, so let's stick with it. But for me, the important bit at the end of that was giving them an assurance that I would feed it back because I was representing the organisation that day. And I went, I didn't even go home that day. I went straight back in to speak to their senior director to say, they've got a major issue. You've got to get into a room with them because they are not happy. So years ago, I'd have been like, I don't know how to deal with this. And now it's going, I'm noticing that you're really angry and you've got a choice here. So, yeah, it's not to say the knees don't still knock sometimes, but it's, I think it's that understanding what sits behind that emotional reaction. It's really interesting how, on the one hand, what you're describing is you being leading very clearly, being quite tough in a way, and saying we're not having some sort of a weird conversation that isn't about the real thing. We're going to talk about the real thing. And at the same time, really giving people freedom. I think that's fascinating. Thank you for sharing that with us. And let's bring this back to that working parent in my mind who wants to drive change and who is unsatisfied with some of the things that they're seeing, but they're not in a formal role to change provision for working parents. They don't have a formal role. What would you advise them to do if they do have ideas around changing the policies for working parents or coming up with you know let's say even self-rostering systems basic things like that but what should they do that has the same level of bravery but is also possible to achieve i don't know i think there's something about don't sit back and wait for somebody else to do it and grab the opportunity i mean i don't know what what opportunities there might be through your alumni for me a big part if I think back over my career, a big part of the opportunities that came along were where there was projects or we had, I remember years ago for the NHS Scotland had an HR director 
and he set up a range of action learning sets to drive forward some some change. So the change at the time was things like the Disability Act was coming into force. And they put, I had no experience around that whatsoever. It wasn't part of my day job. And I'm in this action learning set thinking, I have no idea what this has got to do with me. But what it did was it broadened my horizons. It gave me a different voice and it gave me an opportunity to influence how we implemented that. So there's maybe something about as organisations are looking at. So, for example, just now in the NHS, menopause is the latest thing. There's a huge piece of work. And obviously there's policy that's now coming out around menopause. But where is the voice and and how are you engaging across your communities to be able to start having those conversations to see what would that look like? Health and well-being is a big factor that every organisation, especially since the pandemic, that every organisation is looking at. So where is your voice and and how, how are you heard? Because I think we are not perfect in the health service about how we engage with staff, but we are trying much better than we did 30 years ago to listen and to understand what does it feel like to work here and how could we better that experience. I think it's interesting when you look at your workforce profile as well. So I can't talk about other organisations, but in ours, we have this interesting dynamic of something like 50% of our workforce are aged 55 and over. So we've got a ticking time bomb of lots of knowledge that's going to exit at some point in the next, next few years. And then at the other end of the spectrum, we've got something like 2% of our workforce are aged between 16 and 24. So we've got a big focus just now on, on how are we getting young people in. We're doing a specific thing about lone parents and what opportunities. And that means us looking at very different hours of work and ways of working to help a lone parent to do what I've just described. Because you, the assumption is we're, you know, that every, every parent's doing that as a couple. They're not. So in today's world, we've got broken families, we have different families. So what are the policies that we need to have that give them the opportunity to contribute? And that's a win-win for us because it's addressing our workforce challenges, as well as then making sure there are certain jobs that you can't flex because they've got, you know, so we're looking a lot at distributed working, agile working, home working, etc. But there are fundamentally jobs that you have to be there um, physically. But do the hours all have to be the way that they were before? Or is there a different work pattern that we could look to that helps people to get that balance? I have a feeling you might have lots of people approaching you, especially those fellows from your organisation, <laughs> with ideas. And I want to make sure that as the final world, we do talk about coaching because it's something that you are an extremely strong advocate for. Can you just tell us, for the people listening who don't know what coaching is, what it is in one sentence? And how people can access it? So I thought coaching was about going to somebody and being advised about what to do. And it's absolutely not that. So it's somebody who's got a particular skill set, who's able to talk through an issue or concern. So if I'm coaching somebody, I start with what is it you want from this session? And I will listen very closely to what I'm hearing I will probably paraphrase and feed back things like, I noticed you said that you were uncomfortable. What is it that you're uncomfortable about? So it's helping people, if they've got an issue, to have that space to reflect. When I've been coached, I think I know what the issue is. And through coaching, I realise actually it's something quite different. So when you're able to explore and go to a place... But at the end of it, the only thing that I would facilitate is so what options might you have? 
I won't ever say, well, because I've been doing this job for 33 years, I think you should do. (laughs) That will not work because you're not me. So I would typically say, I'm hearing that you have this issue. Is that, have I summarized that correctly? And now that we've got that right, what options might you have in terms of how you might address that? So invariably, it's about people. Most of us, when we bring an issue, will say, I'm feeling anxious because I'm going to something next week. And I think this group's going to be really difficult with me. And or people saying, I did something last week and it was catastrophic. And I'll usually say something like, well, Titanic was a catastrophe. Was it as bad as Titanic? Because sometimes we exaggerate things in our mind. So I think it's a safe and confidential space for you as an individual to be supported in whatever it is that you're struggling with. For me personally, coaches will all work slightly differently. I just kind of go with the flow in every coaching session. I don't necessarily say, last time we met, we explored this. There are linkages that will run through it, but it will be whatever you want to bring to that particular conversation. Because our heads are a mess and we carry a lot of stuff around that we stay awake with at night time. So I think it's that playing back what you're hearing, challenging some of that thinking and helping the individual to say, so how might you view that differently and what might your options be? So if people are hearing this and think, oh my goodness, I would love to coach me. And then there are 2000 people and obviously Anne has a day job. Realistically, how do you get a coach? So I can't speak for all your organisations that might be listening in today, but my experience and from some research that I've done, I think coaching is increasingly being used across organisations. If I talk about the health service within NHS Scotland, any member of staff can access two free two coaching sessions as part of our national health and wellbeing strategy. And you can get that just by logging on to the Scottish Government links or speaking to somebody within your HR department. I think you will typically find that organisations have been building up a range of coaches that you can access. Not everybody needs one-to-one coaching. So I did a session this morning for some of our leaders and what I said to them was, come in our coaching conversations. It's a three-day programme and it's very, very liberating because instead of solving everybody's problems, you start to use conversations about how do people solve their own problems? So I had a senior charge nurse who did our 3D programme and said, it's fantastic because people have stopped bringing all the problems to her door because she's coaching them to think differently. So I would go and look within your organisations to find out um, what's available. There are a couple of good books if you want. I can maybe send you some recommendations because there's a lot of heavy theory on it, but there are a couple of good books and there are some external courses that you could access as well. So I think it depends what level of coaching you want to do. But again, most people I say start with the very basic two, three day programme and get some insight into it because it's not for everybody. And then find out who in your organisation, because there'll be people that are doing it formally and informally, I think, across lots of big organisations today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the practical tips. And I think that, as you say, the simplest thing is just to get started and to have a look. And I find quite a lot of maybe that's also just the nature of leaders plus fellows a lot of them are starting to do their own coaching qualifications now so they're always looking as part of that they have to do coaching so they're always looking for people to coach so maybe ask around who is doing a coaching qualification and will be up for coaching you 
within your organisations, you'll probably find that it's been built into a lot of your, your existing mm-hmm. leadership programmes and opportunities. So certainly within my own organisation, we're looking at funding opportunities for people to do a basic certificate because that's a win-win again. It means I've got people that I can see. Can you coach some people within the organisation once you've come through the formal qualification? Fantastic. Thank you so much, Anne, for being on the podcast. It's been a pleasure having you and chatting you to you a little bit more. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening today. If you haven't yet joined any of our free events or fellowship program communities, then do consider signing up to our monthly newsletter where you'll be the first to know when spaces become available. Details on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletters. We also send out a monthly bulletin of top tips um, and fresh insights, new ideas for working parents with ambitious career dreams. At the moment, we have some free events on the website and we have um, one programme left for 2023 for people working in the NHS and one programme left for people working in all other sectors. But if you are in the NHS, you only have until 11th July to get your application in. Um, If you work in another sector, you've got a bit more time, you can keep an eye out for applications opening in September. If you do join the fellowship community, you'll join a group of, in my view, really amazing parents who are also very, very passionate about their career. Many of them are podcast listeners. So shout out if you are listening. Um, and they usually are, well, they're always people who really are passionate about their career. They want to progress. They want to make a difference, but also be present with their kids unapologetically. And the program has been designed by me to enable you to be I guess in the driving seat of creating that career um, progression that you want, that I want so that we get more equality um, and also to help you create the family life um, that you want, to give you the courage and tools to do that and um, progress your career while also protecting what's important to you through setting boundaries. 60% of the cohort who completed it last time round said they had got promoted or got more senior responsibility, for example, a board role during the course of the programme, which makes me very happy because that's exactly what we need to do to get more equality in the senior leadership tables. Um, And obviously many of them did really well because they did the programme with babies on their lap. You can do it any time between being pregnant or having a child up to the age of about 11. We even had one person who mentioned the word life-changing in the evaluation, which made my heart jump with joy um, and made me very happy any questions on the fellowship programs just email me or my team um, my email address is ferina at leadersplus.org.uk um, and I just want to give a shout out to Sam W who I think I know who you are but I'm not 100% sure so so um, Sam I want to, t- to say thank you for being the most recent person to leave a review podcasts are incredibly male dominated um, apparently four in five of the podcast hosts of the top charting podcast are men but reviews really help to grow the reach of the podcast to grow the listener base also sharing the podcast really helps and so if you also think it would be quite good if the message in this podcast would reach more people about the fact that we should be able to progress our careers with young kids in tow and if you think that we should have more female voices 
in the podcast, which is one of the fastest growing mediums right now worldwide, then you can do a simple thing of just sharing this episode with two or three friends and leaving a review. Thanks again, Sam, for your lovely comments. And thanks to you all for listening and your support. And it would be really nice to see um, some of you soon at our free events. And I'm sure I'll see the fellows who are listening at our events very soon. Thank you for listening and have a great week.